Hi, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. This recording and the festival itself take place on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to ancestors and elders, past and present. We hope you enjoy this conversation from our 2021 podcast series. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Sammy Shah, and welcome to Beyond the Pale. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's a conversation we're going to be having for the next hour about race, about politics, about race in politics, race in media, race in Australia. Um, so you're going to hear words that you're not comfortable with sometimes, like white people, um, and, and this, this is something you're going to have to deal with. Um, it's, it's really wonderful to be here and, and to be hosting. Oh, I'm, I'm hosting, right? Yeah. Um, and that's something that we're going to have to do, contend with as well. Uh, I would like to introduce you to our wonderful panel today. Starting all the way in the corner, we have Amy McGuire. Uh, Amy is a Durumbul and South Sea Islander woman from, uh, from Queen, Central Queensland right now? Yeah. That's right. And Amy is a phenomenal journalist, works, has worked with uh, National Indigenous Times, with Tracker, with NITV, uh, was also the Indigenous Affairs reporter with BuzzFeed News and is working currently on a podcast uh, series about the case for innocence for Kevin Henry, who was wrongfully convicted in 1992. Next to Amy is Rihanna Patrick. Uh, Rihanna is, has spent nearly two decades working with the ABC, amongst many other uh, broadcasters. Uh, in 2020, Rihanna joined Indigenous X and is now the new head of audio and podcast for Indigenous X and about to launch their new podcast later this year, which is very exciting indeed. And finally, we have Avani Dias, who is the presenter for Triple J's Hack, uh, listened to, of course, by millions of people across Australia. Avani has been with the ABC for going on 10 years at this point and worked in newsrooms, uh, worked on all kinds of bulletin stories, and has been nominated for three Walkley Awards at this point in her career, and no doubt will be nominated and winning many more to come. Um, one of the things that we've been struggling with in this panel is once we figured out that no one knew who was actually supposed to moderate it until five minutes ago, uh, is, um, why is why, why is there a need for this panel? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go around the, the panel and ask everyone this first, uh, starting with you, Avani. Why do we need to have, in 2021, after we've had the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, protests around the world, we've had this conversation about how important race is in representation, in media, in politics, in power. Why are we still at the point where we need to have a special panel to talk about the fact that there is no racial representation in race, in media, in power, in politics? Well, I think the numbers just show why this is a problem. Um, something like 80% of newsreaders on Australian TV screens are white, um, you know, where we, and that doesn't reflect the population of Australia in any way. Um, and, you know, there have been studies done into this and they've shown that people of colour in Australia are moving away from the mainstream news organisations. They're not reading or watching the, the big news channels. And that's a major problem, especially in the last year when we've had a pandemic, when we need trustworthy, transparent, accountable news more than ever. We need these communities to be tuning in to reliable news sources. And I think that we've seen a real failure, especially in commercial media. I think you look at um, most of the commercial media does not have 
even one non-white person on a panel um, in a mainstream hosting position and so on. And there has been a lot of progress and we're seeing things happen, but you know, I think we're still failing to tell stories about the multicultural communities that exist, First Nations communities, and really, I guess, hold those in power to account for racist structures, for racism that exists in this country. And I think we need to be really reflecting on why it is that our media is in that position. Rihanna, same question. Why is Australian media particularly. Let's focus on that because we are all media people here. Why is it so, so white? That's a really good question. One that I've asked myself for many years that I've been doing the job that I've been doing. And I think, you know, I just th- I keep thinking, is it time? Have, have we got to that point where it's time? And when I think the Black Lives Matter movement again came to the fore, worldwide attention was on it. Um, You know, it was not, the Black Lives Matter movement itself wasn't the conversation I was having with my own community. It was about black deaths in custody, Mm -hmm. um, which I know Amy's been a massive advocate um, about talking about that disparity that exists as well. And I think, I just, you know, I, I, I just don't think that there's a time when The the sector is actually going to ever be ready. And I think, um, you know, we keep pushing and it's also the work that you see on the outside is not necessarily the work that you're seeing on the inside. Um, You know, and I spent nearly 19 years at the ABC um, trying to do that internal work of supporting Indigenous staff, of supporting um, the way that we were portrayed by our own organisation, really trying to have those conversations about why things weren't correct in the way that they were doing it, why we needed to do better. And it just gets to the point where you just don't have the energy anymore. Um, and because you're taking a lot of that on, you start to lose yourself, you know, and that's what I found coming out the other end. And, you know, I grew up um, on the western side of Cape York. I had one television station, which was the ABC, and it was the only place I ever wanted to work for. And I knew very early that I wanted to be a journalist when I was about six. Um, and I just went for it and got to live my dream. But what I realised was when I got to my dream, my dream wasn't ready for me. You know, my dream was really far behind where I saw myself um, and what I knew that I could do and what I wanted to do for my community as a Torres Strait Islander. And there are a few Torres Strait Islanders in the media landscape. So I had that on top of me as well of trying to be the voice for my people, you know, where... um, most of us live on the mainland now. Most of us um, have prospered on Aboriginal country. I am a visitor here and I just want to acknowledge that because we haven't done an acknowledgement to country and so I want to acknowledge the um, land on which we meet and gather today and the Eora people of, um, the Gadiel people of the Eora nation um, because I'm a visitor and I am always aware of what that brings to the conversation as well. And so a lot of my career has been spent trying to kind of put my people to the forefront because we're not visible Um, as the other Indigenous group in Australia, but also I also represent Aboriginal people in that and advocate for them in the spaces that I've been in because I know my place. Um, And I just don't think, you know, I had hopes that there would be a media reckoning here like there was overseas, like there was in Britain. There were conversations um, with what happened at the BBC. There were conversations with the CBC when one of their top Indigenous uh, morning presenters quit on air um, last year and I was waiting for that to happen and it kind of, kind of, happened with Cody Bedford having the courage to talk about her experience at SBS. Um, She also worked at the ABC. I knew her when she worked at the ABC. But then nothing happened onwards. So I just don't think we are really ready to look at what needs to happen 
and the work that needs to be done to deconstruct all of that. Amy, is that work at all being seen by you in any of the places you're looking at? Yeah, and I'd also like to acknowledge the continuing sovereignty of Gadigal mob and all First Nations people all across the country. Um, I feel like, and from you know the very beginning in relation to the invasion of Aboriginal lands, the media have actually been a tool of colonialism. It's very much of settler colonialism. It can't be separated. And I see that in the representations that still endure from the frontier to the present. And so I don't see any hope that white media will change because I see it as having a purpose, particularly in relation to blackfellas and the way our presence is completely, you know, the whole goal of settler colonialism is to eliminate us from this land. And so I think that there are ways that that, that that still continually happens, perhaps like perhaps more subtly. Um, yeah, but I think it's. Um, I don't think it's going to change because there is not a lot of accountability in relation to the way that media represents us and the way that um, certain stories there have not been a accountability even for the really severe consequences. Like I'm thinking around that when we talk about the ABC, ABC late line and the stories that led to the intervention where there was never accountability. In fact, there was a complete um, forceful resistance to acknowledging the hurt that that program had caused the community and Aboriginal communities all around the country. The intervention is still continuing. So I feel like there's a greater purpose behind that. There's a reason why media are so reluctant to open up um, and so why I'm always more, you know, I believe more in the power of a strong independent black media, but independent media as a whole, because I just don't see things changing. And as Avani and Rihanna, and as you know yourself, it hasn't changed. I don't think it's going to change because it means um, relinquishing power. And so often the Australian media has been in service of those in power at the expense of those who are powerless. And we see that in the talking heads who are promoted, who are on our TVs. They're not going to relinquish power. In fact, they're almost the face of it themselves. All right. So that brings us to um, a, few, a few people have now mentioned the ABC. And uh, it is a national broadcaster. And I don't want to focus the whole conversation on just that one organization. Um, but let's ask that very you know, every now and then, since I came to Australia, what, nine years ago now, a question that comes up all the time and is debated by media all the time for some reason is the question, is Australia racist? And then that question gets asked by, by the ABC, even during censuses and stuff, and, and everyone goes yes or no and all of that. So let me twist that question a bit. Is the ABC racist? <laughs> Amy, I'll start with you. I mean, I would say yes. <laughs> because I, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about the way, because there's always exceptions. There's some great journalists who obviously work in the ABC and across mainstream media. Like hashtag not all ABC, yeah, right? Of course, yeah. But, um, I'm a paid employee by the ABC, just to clarify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can sit this one out. Yeah. <laughs> in some ways, like, journalism in itself is... Um, the processes or the methods of journalism actually go against um, like Aboriginal ways of storytelling or Aboriginal ways of knowing ourselves. And I think that's where the um, disjuncture happens. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I think we see it all the time in relation to, you know, the racist stories. I mean, I'm going a bit further from the ABC now, but I think all media have a problem with racism, mm -hmm. you know, but ABC often... Um, 
they're no different from the Channel 7s or the Channel 9s. So, you, you know, blatantly, we just had a case in Queensland where Channel 7, you know, we're reporting on Queensland police sending um, cops into kindergartens and they had images of black children being locked up and it was very blatant. But you see that same rhetoric in certain ways being promoted by the ABC. You know, I recently saw an article about, you know, um, Sudanese Australians, whether they're more susceptible to crime. Yeah. And the, the basis of that article is methodologically flawed. It should never have been up there. And yet, where's the consequences for running those lies, you know, and for making it seem legitimate? You know, to me, that is not a legitimate thing to write about. You know what I mean? Oh, well, it's not legitimate in the way that it was presented. You know, so I think the ABC are no different from the rest of the show, but sometimes in a sense that they're seen differently. I don't know, but for me, they're just as racist. And I use the example of the intervention, which is the most ridiculous, you know, the reporting that led to the intervention. I just was recently re-looking back at it. It was absolutely outrageous. And I know a lot of people have seen it, but when I was just looking back at it, I just, I couldn't believe how blatant, how disgusting, how dehumanizing it was when I looked at it again, even after 10 or 11 or 12 years and how they just got away with it. I think that's the problem. There's just no accountability in relation to these stories that enact horrendous forms of violence against the most vulnerable. And then, you know, there's no... Yeah, so I would say, yes, I think the media as a whole are completely racist. Rihanna? I don't think they know. I'll be perfectly honest, and I know you can't speak to this, Avni, because I've been there. I have been there. Um, you know, I, I honestly think they don't realise that they are. Um, and one of the things that I found, I think, is, uh, you know, I could name instances of a lot of things that, you know, as Indigenous staff, you would have to send emails about, you would have to pull people up for. And like, I'll be honest, I know that when I started pulling people up very early in my career, that my career was doomed. Like, I just knew that I would not go any further because I had annoyed the top, you know, and I knew that really early on. Uh, but, you know, looking back and because I have been thinking a lot about my time there um, more recently, I, I wouldn't change that because I stood up for what I believe in and I stood up for what was right for my community. Because if I didn't do it, who would? You know, um, and I, I would do that again today without a hesitation, knowing that my career was not going to go where I, where I would have liked it to have gone. Um, but I think, yeah, I think what I realised was that it is so normalised in the workplace that they can't see it because it's so normalised. Like, it's so systematic, it's so institutionalised. Um, it's, you know, it is a culturally unsafe workspace. But no, and I even said to them, like, no amount of reconciliation action plans or inclus inclusion and diversity policies are going to fix this problem. So you can keep bringing in the brown people, the black people and the indigenous people to be in your organisation, in those tiers of wherever they need to be. But until you fix what is fundamentally flawed at the basis, at the root, at the foundation, it is not going to change because you're just bringing in people to then suffer the trauma that they will from being in these culturally unsafe workspaces. Um, and I think that's the interesting thing when I came out the other side of that. They understand trauma if you've been a foreign correspondent, if you have reported on something that has been traumatic, they understand that from a non-Indigenous perspective. What they don't understand is black trauma. They don't understand Indigenous trauma. They don't understand the trauma that 
people of colour working in those institutions also experience because you're dealing with the daily challenges of doing your job, you're dealing with the daily challenges of the roadblocks that are put in front of you and you're dealing with the daily challenges of constantly being um, susceptible to that. So it becomes a sustained type of trauma, which is how I've described it to people now that I kind of understand it a little bit more and have had that space to really break it down and look at it. But I think you're absolutely right because I've been trained my entire career. You know, I went to university. I have a degree in journalism. I have been trained in a Western context. And for me, it's no longer about how I tell that story in a Western context. I want to find the indigeneity in how I tell that story now and completely change the way that I have been taught to tell a story. Because I think like you, um, um, I don't believe you can make change in a mainstream media organisation at any level in this country. And I think the only way we can do it is by rising up and supporting our own sovereign-led media organisations in this country, whether that is from an Indigenous point of view or whether that's from a person of colour point of view. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Those points that you've made are completely correct. We have so many examples at the ABC, at every media organisation of racist storytelling, and that's very clear. Um, my experience there has been great, and I think I've been lucky that that's been my situation. Um, but I do think we need to acknowledge that we do need to change something. The ABC reaches 12 million people online every day, and that is a huge part of society, and it is a mainstream part of society, and we're not going to fix issues like racism if we do not figure out how to change this situation because, you know, we can broadcast to the converted, we can broadcast to the people in this room who will support these stories and, and these ideas, but until we, you know, transport these ideas to the broad majority of Australians, we're all going to continue to experience racism every day. So I think we really need to reflect on that situation and, and do something about it because, yeah, it's going to be difficult to change. It probably needs a complete restructure of how the media exists, but I don't think we can say this is, a, this is something we need to just stop dealing with because we need to do something about it. I want to actually talk about, um, I mean, you're, right now, out of all of us, you're the one who's got the most prominent role facing the audience. And as a person of colour facing the audience, um, what has the reaction been for you? Not just from the, the, the white audience, but also from the people of colour in the community. Have they, has the fact that you are you know, non-white come into it at all when they react to you? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's been both extremely negative and extremely positive. Um, you know, broadly, my experience has been great. You know, you get the usual criticism, you're too right wing, you're too left wing, blah, 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 mm. which is fine. Yeah. We all deal with that as journalists and that's great. Um, but, you know, you get the occasional uh, takedown by a commentator and um, you get a barrage of racist trolls. I'm in the middle of it at the moment. Um, people, and, and you know, you rationalize it and you're like, it's fine, whatever, this just happens. But um, occasionally you're human and it hits home when someone says something like, you know, go back to where you came from or whatever. Um, but you know, 90% of it has been great. And I think the best part of it is the young brown women who reach out and say, I'm so happy to see you in this position. I'm really grateful that you're there. Um, and I see myself reflected in you and that's the best thing. So, you know, I'll take a hundred racist trolls for the one person who sees a benefit in that. But they also like, 
Avani, and I know you probably can't talk to this, so just nod or do whatever you have to do editorial <laughs> policy-wise. Blink twice wise. if you'll be held hostage. <laughs> but, you know, but I don't think they understand that that's also what we take on as yeah. people of yeah. colour in that space because they don't actually prepare you for that. Um, and it's just considered a part of the job and you'll know what to do and you'll learn how to grow a thicker skin. But that's not part of the point. Like there's a duty of care there that also needs to be taken into account, I feel. Yeah, there was, there, was I, a, there was a moment I remember where, um, you know, with, with uh, many of the places I've worked at, where I realized my colleagues are being attacked for their content, I'm being attacked for, the, for my skin, and I can't change one of those things, mm. whereas they can change the others. But when you have that realization that you are now um, not just Avani Dias, a, a journalist, a, a, you know, a, a researcher, a writer, etc., etc., you are also, Avani Dias, brown woman. Yeah. What does that become a burden or does that become a responsibility? I think it's both. And I think um, to your point, I mean, your experience has obviously been really different, but um, Triple J is pretty forward thinking with this stuff. They've um, brought in sort of, you know, basically they've banned certain racist terms from our text line. Um, they have, you know, provided duty of care and a lot of support for this situation. And I think that's down to good leadership. And that doesn't happen in all parts of the ABC, very obviously. Um, but, you know, I think there are ways that they are adapting and that they are considering this idea. But, you know, ultimately, I do think that we do need more people of colour in those management positions to understand these experiences and understand the fact that, yeah, you, you have a lot more on you if you're a person of colour in these positions. I've just, um, I mean, I can't talk to Rihanna's experience, but your experiences that you're speaking of, there are so many experiences of mob who I've heard are working in ABC. So it seems to be quite a common experience for blackfellas. And I was just thinking that it's because the ABC, I mean, when I think of Aboriginal journalism, it's about you're in service to your communities completely. I see it as being an arm of activism. It's a tool of activism. And I think that goes against like this idea of objectivity and false balance that the ABC has. And there, so I think a lot of mob who are working in ABC come against, up against those certain values. And so there's that pushback, I feel, because I think it's totally different to what blackfellas go into journalism a lot of the time, which is to help mob and to be in service of mob. But I don't think ABC or other journalistic outlets are set up in that way. And I think that's where some of that stuff comes in because Rihanna's experience mirrors so many mob who I've heard who've worked in mainstream newsrooms who have very similar things and come out feeling traumatised and feeling like they have to take time off or even want to leave journalism altogether because it is literally an unsafe space for them. So I think that might be one of the reasons because it's not just one person, it seems to be a common thread of mob who work in these institutions. So I think there's something violent going on there, particularly towards Aboriginal people and other people of colour in relation to that, I think, because it doesn't just seem to be something unique. It seems to be almost part of it, I think. I think you raise an important point when, when it comes to objectivity, right? You know, we've built these cultural media institutions on this idea that we're telling objective stories. And I think that's one big way we need to rethink what we're doing here because, yeah. you know, a lot of us have 
things we care about. We have passions and that's why we're in this job. We're not there because we're robots and we want to tell both sides of, you know. We're definitely not there for the money, that's for sure. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. true. <laughs> um, and so I think that's one way we can really rethink the media as a whole, you know. This idea of objectivity shouldn't just be, yeah, you get a climate change supporter and a sceptic. That doesn't work. We need to be thinking about, you know, fair storytelling, accurate storytelling, but of course, having a form of advocacy in those stories, we always do that, but we have to pretend that we don't. Mm. And I think we need to rethink that in mainstream news organisations. Yeah, and like balance is important. And, you know, having that objectivity is important. But I think, you know, when I worked on Speaking Out, which is the National Indigenous Radio Program that comes out through local radio stations, um, that was interesting because we had at that stage half an hour to balance the entire network per week. Half an hour. It's an hour now, you know, but we had <laughs> half an hour. And I remember my boss at the time saying to me, uh, yeah, you need to think about the balance with your guests. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, you, we like we we you know, like if you're going to have that, then you really need someone on the other side weighing this up. And I said, I am the balance. I am the half an hour balance for thousands of hours of radio on this network. Are you kidding me right now? You know, um, <laughs> I just was dumbfounded by that. But it's it's interesting because I think you're right, Avani. Like I've heard something recently where someone had told their truth in a story, a person of colour, um, about the racist experience they had had and the feedback they got was that they needed balance. So they basically were saying you have to interview the racist that you were talking about. Yeah. And I'm like, have we really come to this point now where we can't, even our racism can't be validated mm. unless there's someone on the opposite side of that? And I thought, oh, wow, this is, this is why journalism's not working. <laughs> like, I just, you know, and it, it yeah, it, I, I just, and I think you're right that there needs to be a different way. And I think there needs to be a way where when you're in that and you're coming from uh, a place of knowing that your expertise in that needs to be recognised the same as it would if you were uh, an expert in economics. Because the way that they look at what we navigate as brown people in journalism is as though it's just an easy thing that you do. Trying to not get in the middle of mob business is so hard, right, Amy? <laughs> like, you just don't get yourself involved in that because you're the conduit. Mm. You're not there to take sides. You're there to have all those voices. But they don't understand that that is actually a skill. That is not something that you um, go to university to learn. That is a life experience that you have to navigate your way through. So then when you apply that to journalism, what you're bringing is actually a very specialised skill to that area and it should be acknowledged. And it's not. And I think we should also acknowledge the fact that, you know, we talk about bias and, you know, the media has been biased for the last however many years towards one way of thinking and one point of view, and that's often a white point of view. And so, you know, if we're talking about objectivity, it hasn't been yeah. objective in that sense either. It's just how do we picture this idea of fair and balanced? We're not really doing that on either side at the moment. Um, so, all right, let's then go wider from the ABC and, and, and into media overall, um, how do you fix the problem? Is it a problem that gets fixed by, by the white people within the organizations um, recognizing the flaws in the system and then, and then opening a handout and letting people of color into the right places? Or m will it be fixed by forcing our way in and shoving people off perches? 
I don't know because I feel like because I'm I've haven't really worked a lot in mainstream newsrooms, so I feel yeah. like I'm always just like, no, I'm going to go build my own thing. You know what I mean? So I'm always just like, I really don't see it as a safe place for mob or other, like I don't think that that's going to happen. So I think just finding a way to resource. So a more yeah. fragmented, a, a more not fragmented know. is the wrong word. A more a more independent place, which is run by, owned by, managed by. Well, we've always had that dream in Aboriginal media, but it's yeah. been slowly watered down. Like back, I think in the eighties or the nineties, there's this whole idea for almost like a black fella. Um, ABC, you know, where you had all the community radio networks and the TV and it became NITV. So they really like watered it down to what it yeah. was supposed to be. So we can't be dependent on government or anything like that because it's just not going to happen. You know what I mean? So it's about like, but, but we have a lot of the infrastructure in communities all around the country already, you know, and we have mob who are truth telling and we have mob who are out there doing the work, but they're never recognised, you know what I mean? So I think it's already there. And I think um, like Indigenous sex are doing great things around using social media. So there are things that are happening now because I think for us, a big part of black media was about being um, also putting up a resistance to white media and white media lies, which are continuing and ongoing. So that's always been a big part of black media. It's, an act, it's a tool of activism. And so I think just building up that armory in relation to that is where our focus should be. Yeah, because I don't see it changing until there's fundamental changes in this country, I think. Really? Yeah, I think we need to also consider who our audiences are and who we're telling these stories to, you know. Are we telling them purely for our own respective communities? Are we telling them for a broad majority of people? Because I think when you think about that, then you rethink, I guess, how you tell those stories as well. And so, yeah, I, I guess mainstream media at this stage is obviously very catered to a white audience. Um, and I think we should be expanding that purely, you know, for economic reasons, you know, we will get more viewers. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it makes sense to do that. Um, so yeah, I don't know what the solution is per se, but I think a lot of it also has to do with access, right? Um, you know, I was able to get to my position because I had huge parental support. Um, you know, I was able to live at home, have support from my parents throughout my entire career that got me to this position. And that I recognise is a really privileged position to be in. And if I was having to support a family or, you know, pay my way through things, then I couldn't have done all the hours of voluntary work that I did in the media um, to get that experience, to get to this point. And so through those pathways, we're just cutting out a whole section of society who can't afford to be a journalist, basically. And again, I think that's a rethink we need to figure out is, do we need to be working at community radio stations for free, overnight shifts for several years to get a role in the media? Because if that's the only way we're gonna do it, then it's only gonna be, you know, well-off people getting these roles. Um, Rihanna, the, uh, Avani um, raised a really good point about the, who we're telling these stories for. Um, so you've got that experience, maybe you can answer this question. Do white audiences have an appetite for non-white stories? Oh, big time. And I have to like, I have to preface this that, I mean, I've been really lucky, Avani, in that that was one of the things I was really worried about when I took over. I've had two national programs. The first was an Indigenous one. And then the second one I got, I could do anything that I wanted. It wasn't just embedded in Indigenous. It was actually a non-Indigenous program with an Indigenous presenter. Um, and one of the things that I was worried about when I took those on was about 
what kind of messages I would get, what kind of talkback callers I would get, um, you know, how I would navigate all of that. And I have to say that my audience was probably one of the best. I never had that on my Facebook pages, on my Twitter, on my Instagram. I only had really great comments. Um, when I did my NADOC week specials, it, the phones would go off because they wanted to win those CDs. Like it would <laughs> blow my mind um, because I'm like, you know, they're black, right? Um, just reiterating, you can call for a CD, but they're black. Um, but yeah, you know, and I felt very grateful that I had such a respectful audience. You know, they weren't necessarily respectful to my gay producer. You know, they didn't necessarily like me as a woman, but I was fine with that as long as it wasn't that I was a black woman, you know, because I felt like that was one step at least in the right direction. Um, but some of the things that I had seen, I mean, I worked as an associate producer in television on, a, on an Indigenous documentary program that used to exist, Message Stick, and I saw what that presenter of that, like that national front-facing television presenter went through and the types of letters she would get. Like, they would actually write letters with those words in it, Amy, and send them in the post. So mm -hmm. she would be opening these letters. No one would have opened them ahead of time having to read what they had said about her. Um, you know, so I've seen that. I've seen the type of uh, website messages that Away gets on Radio National is the only Indigenous arts and culture radio program in this country. Um, and I have so much respect for Daniel Browning as one of the people who um, I used to work with at Triple J News when he was the Triple J News um, team leader uh, many moons ago now. And, you know, I've seen the types of things that come through of people just, again, writing what they think they can write because it's supposedly anonymous. Um, you know, so I think it's, you know, I think I'm like you, Amy, because I started in Indigenous media. I got paid, sorry. Um, <laughs> I actually got paid really well. 98.9 uh, FM, Brisbane, thank you. Um, you know, and that's obviously Uncle Tiger, Bale's, yeah. you know, a large part of, of that. Him. Because, um, yeah. <laughs> so it was interesting with 98.9 because it's like the only country music station in Brisbane and they did it deliberately. So you had this huge audience where you had all mob, but you had all these rednecks. So every morning they would listen to Uncle Tiger and Uncle Tiger, he never... Mixed words. No, <laughs> he would tell them straight out, like straight out. And so I just remember, you know, he'd have all these white people coming up to him, but they loved him in the end, but he never like, he was never palatable to white people. He was just talking to black fellas. So that's, I think, what we have to, you just talk to black followers and then you don't really worry about white followers, I don't think, because that's what he did. And it was, it was, you know, it was just so brilliant because, you know, he's left this legacy that I don't think can ever be touched, but he just spoke every morning out. He just like delivered all these truth bombs, but he gave space for other voices to come through. That was his real talent, I think. He had this amazing career in, um, or history on the land rights movement, and yet he would raise other voices up and particularly the voices of Aboriginal women and I think that was just a really amazing model you know he never um but they appreciated that yeah the robust conversations because he would let them have their say you know he was such a gifted facilitator of those conversations and to watch that yeah. in play was just next level of yeah I want to be that when I grow up still yeah but it you know, like he would let them say all the stuff they wanted to say and then break it down. And by the end of it, they would just be eating out the palm of his hand because he'd taken the time to actually listen to them where they thought he, they'd ring up and he'd hang up on them. But he actually let them. And he, you know, it was part of the way he would lead people into those conversations. And you're right, country music, they wouldn't let a black fella in the door, but they will in the radio. Mm. And that was always his saying about why we did the work that we did 
when I was there. Um, and I think it's really interesting. Most people don't realise, and I know that it blows the minds of um, our Indigenous Canadian relatives when we say we have national Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander radio stations in every capital city in this country and then some. And the only place that we don't have it, because I worked in um, Indigenous radio policy before joining the ABC, um, is in Canberra, funnily enough. Yeah. There's no spectrum left in Canberra. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But, you know, I don't think people realise that we have over 100 radio stations mm. that are pumping out this truth day in, day out, and they use different models and mediums to get into people's households mm. who would never normally welcome them in the flesh. Yeah. So, a- Amy, I want to ask you, because you spend all your time working in these, in these in Indigenous media and, 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 and in that curated space, is it better because it is um, something that is its own thing away from the mainstream, or would it benefit from more mainstream attention? I don't know. I think it just has a different purpose because often like when we're just talking about black community, right, it has, it's almost like a community hub. So it offers employment training for young people. And so it just has a completely different purpose, you know, and that's true of like Aboriginal print media, um, the new forms of Aboriginal media coming up. It just has a fundamentally different purpose. Like it's about Aboriginal aspirations of land justice and sovereignty um, and self-determination. And it's not so much storytelling to tell stories. It's about justice. It's about fighting for your mob and fighting for accountability and change. So it's, it's very much focused towards black followers, I think. It, it has a completely different purpose. You know, it's very agenda-driven, I think. Um, one of the things that we talk about right now is, you know, uh, this conversation seems to have entered the mainstream in Australia because of the Black Lives Matter movement, as if it wasn't already happening for a very long time. What happened, though? We had this massive movement nationally, protest marches, and then nothing. What, what, why, why nothing? I think a lot of it was very performative because blackfellas had been doing the way, and this is a point made by many people, like, black, like particularly Aboriginal families of death and custody victims, they were always protesting, they were always marching, but they never had um, the attention placed on them until Black Lives Matter. But we've seen that attention just slowly fade off. So I can only think of it as very performative. And we have this problem in Australia where they can look overseas and outsource their outrage overseas. They can't see the violence in their own land. They can't see it. Sometimes they don't understand that it's there. Um, And I like when you look at a lot of like the footage, like a lot of people talking about, well, there was that footage of George Floyd and it was so blatant. It was a murder on camera and everyone knew it. We have that footage. And yet there are excuses made against the violence perpetrated against Aboriginal bodies. He deserved it or it wasn't that or it was justifiable force. It was part of their protocol. It's, it's rubbish. Like you look at the footage of Wayne Fuller Morrison, whose case is currently going on, whose inquest is currently going on. There's like blatant violence there, but there's violence in these structures that are killing Aboriginal people that hasn't been understood or acknowledged. It's happening right here, and yet I think they refuse to see it because obviously there's this huge complicity in it. So I think a lot of the protests and the attention were completely performative, a bit of like white guilt because you're you're like supporting mob overseas and not at the expense of here. But then as we saw, you know, it's almost like business as usual as it has been. Like we had the 30th year of the Royal Commission just last week and we had, we've had seven deaths in custody in the past two months. And I've talked to some of the, the families are like, there's no support for them. You know what I mean? And families still are struggling to just get the attention and the support they need. And there's this enormous burden on them and enormous onus on them to be able to just to fight for justice. So we're not seeing, I I just see it as performative completely. And I think when you look at the US as well, you know, the reason why we are on this panel is that um, 
there has been some sort of media reckoning, quote unquote, in the US. And, you know, there's been a lot of criticism from um, Black Lives Matter activists that that is um, distracting from the broader causes of what they're trying to deal with there. That, you know, okay, we're getting a few extra people of colour on screen, but are we really fixing the racism that exists? And so if we're looking to the US to think about what we want to do here, which we always seem to do frustratingly, as Amy says, when we're ignoring these situations in our own country, you know, I wonder if that's the kind of reckoning we'd want in this ideal world in Australia, because I don't think it has necessarily been beneficial there either in the way that it's worked. Obviously, something needs to happen, but I don't know if that's the model we should be looking to. We have a question here. Hi, what's your name? Uh, my name's Drew. Um, thank you all for the discussion today and for all of the incredible work that you do. Um, I wanted to ask about Indigenous X. It obviously has a formal partnership with... Guardian, um, is there interest from other um, larger media organisations in establishing um, a similar partnership with Indigenous X? Luke is uh, very specific, particular, <laughs> um, and he looks at a number of things. And, it, and the Guardian partnership was quite interesting because it came about when the Guardian entered the Australian market and they we were the first place that they came to of wanting to start... Uh, doing something around comment and commentary from Indigenous people. And up until that point, you know, um, there had not been a regular Indigenous voice or columnist in a major newspaper. And so it was groundbreaking in that way. We have partnerships with, uh, with universities, um, but we take it on a case-by-case -case basis. But when it's broader than that, not so much. And I think one of the things that, um, I mean, I've been on the Indigenous X journey you know, as the hashtag that turned into a media company since their formation. And I've been a fan for a long time before I even um, got the chance to work for them, um, is that, you know, we are independent Indigenous media. We're Indigenous led, we're Indigenous owned, we're 100% in Indigenous staffed, um, you know, and there aren't many places that can say that, you know, and I think that's what I'm incredibly proud about what Luke has created from this movement that started on Twitter has been able to put something like this together and employ someone like me. My, my end goal had always been, I would get the skills that I needed and then I would take that back to Indigenous media because that's actually where my purpose and my whole being was about. And I'm so grateful that it happened at the time that it has, that I've been able to do that. Um, but yeah, like we are open to that, but to be honest, uh, The Guardian are pretty much the only people. Yeah. You have someone else? Yep. Thanks very much. Um, so I was just going to respond to a comment you made about um, the importance of um, the support you get from younger brown people. Can I just say as an older brown person, it is really important that your generation is standing up, is on a platform doing what you're doing. So I wanted to say that. Um, Thank you. The other thing I wanted to say is I get your comments about We've got to create a new space for ourselves. We can't just go with the structures that the white um, community has created um, to, to fix these problems. But some of us are stuck in, we're not all in areas of, of work where mm. we can do that. I'm a scientist. Yeah. I'm in a, a very white <laughs> scientific organisation. Um, and I'm trying to call stuff out. Mm. I know this is a big question, but I just would appreciate your views on accountability, on what you can actually put in place. 
in a setup where you can't just go away and say, okay, I'm going to create a brown, people of colour, Indigenous organisation to replace the unsafe experiences in my workplace. You're, you're asking how do you fix the organisations you're in already mm, without yeah. having to possibly I know this is set a up a new question. thing entirely. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Thanks. Yeah, I think, Amy, you raised a really good point. I mean, who was held accountable when that late line story came out, you know? And that's, I, I've never even really thought about that because it's like, why aren't we, ha, why aren't there any repercussions when there is a really bad story that goes out there? You know, there's a bit of damage control. Sometimes it's like, fix the headline, fix this, whatever, in possibly places like ABC, but I doubt commercial media would even consider it. Well, there's um, a story these days, um, which I'm sure everyone's read, which is about Neighbours, the TV show, mm. and the racism experienced by the Indigenous star, uh, actors and the uh, Indian Australian actors on staff. And again, no, there's been no repercussions. Mm. I mean, Fremantle Media, which kind of runs that, has just said, oh yeah, we look into it, but that's basically been it. How do you, mm. what do you do to make sure there's accountability? It's hard. And it's also frustrating. I don't know. I'm sure you all feel like this. You also don't want to be the uh, constant brown person that's calling it out mm -hmm. and um, also holding the person to account. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe media jail of some sort. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see. This is my problem. I'm so sorry for your experiences and what you had to deal with, because that's why, I mean, from a media sense, I have a luxury in a sense that I can do that. But I know of so many, you know, mob and, you know, other non um, other people of colour who are just, you know, you almost have to be silent to survive in certain ways, and there aren't those processes set up in place, or you have to, you know, really fight hard, and it's continually an uphill battle. Because I know that you know some of my colleagues, even in academia, are dealing with that right now, and it's very relentless. And so I don't see. That's why I like. That's why I say I just want to be out of those sort of institutions because I don't have the solutions. I don't know because I know how relentless it can be, particularly in academia. You know, there is a complete unwillingness or failure to recognise racism or race, understand how violent it is on the bodies of black and brown people. Um, and so I just yeah, and I mean I see with these like these Western institutions, these these the academy is a colonial institution. It's set up for a purpose, and we're seeing that right now so that's why I just I don't know at all what to do in relation to that because I see like the experiences of my colleagues and what they've had to go through you know and just continually fighting an uphill battle and in the end it's almost just like you have to leave and then you just have to deal with the trauma of leaving and what happens after that. Yeah, I, I don't want to rely on the idea that representation is the only solution but I do feel like when it comes to accountability that is one thing um, that happens is if there are people of colour, journalists in the room at press conferences asking these questions, um, the white journalists who may have something that could be a bit racist to say will feel, they'll feel weird saying it because they will see others in the room. Um, if you're on a panel and, um, you know, the Phil Curry example gets thrown around a lot from insiders the other day, the fact, you know, he said that, um, you know, he, he, own, he does, if, if he the majority of Australia yeah. could see what happens to First Nations communities, then maybe there'd be more understanding. And he, you know, basically said that this happens only in the north and south of the country or something yeah, like that. Yeah, read a census, buddy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, if there was another person of colour on that panel, a First Nations person on that panel, would he feel like he could say that? I don't know. Yeah, so that is one form of accountability. I mean, there is something telling about a show called Insiders, which is always just white 
So, okay. mm. yeah. But I think, you know, I think what I would say is you've got to work out um, how much of that work you're willing to continue to do. But I would also say that it is not the work of the brown and Indigenous people in that organisation to continue to do that work. Like you have to seek out those that can back you because, again, it's about validation. It's always about validation. Um, you know, that they are probably more willing to listen to someone who is like them than they are of listening to the opposite side. So you actually have to weigh that up for yourself of where you can do the best work, the important important work and how much of that energy you're willing to put into that is what I would say. Because I hear you, sister. <laughs> I hear you. Right. Any other question? Yep. Um, thanks, firstly, for like super insightful and powerful words this morning. Um, my question is whether you have any advice for other people of colour working in media, working in politics. Um, how do we advocate for our voices and our stories to be heard without, one, allowing ourselves to be tokenised or used as shields, um, and two, recognising that we're settlers of, of, sorry, settlers of colour and that we absolutely should also be advocating for First Nations voices to be heard? Yeah. Um yeah, I think that's a hard question to answer because, yeah, you're, it's that double-edged sword, right? Because we're obviously settlers in this country as well um, and, you know, you're trying to figure that out. I don't know, maybe that's one for you guys because how would you want other people of colour to be allies, like, you know, in our institutions? I'm not sure because, um, I mean, I think first understanding the history of this country is um, key, but I think there's that real importance of building solidarities and taking time. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. But I think, like, understanding what this history is and what's currently happening in relation to... Because the original violence actually stems from the theft of Aboriginal land. So I think just understanding that, I don't know, um, building solidarities and... Yeah, I think solidarity is key. And I mean, look, I'm like you as a Torres Strait Islander. This is not my country. I do not have bloodline to this country to be able to speak for it. But I still like you walk and I live and I prosper on it, you know. But it's having that respect of understanding where your place is in that, um, you know. And from a Torres Strait Islander point of view, as a woman, I also don't technically have a voice because we're very patriarchal. So, you know, I, I have had to navigate a lot of different things um, because of those spaces. But I think it's about doing the work um, and, you know, and I've already seen, you know, like particularly in music, because I work a bit um, in music as well, that there are a lot of um, settlers of colour, you know, um, visitors of colour who understand and have done the work in understanding how to have those conversations when they're in Indigenous spaces. And so it actually has meant that we've brought them in with us because we understand that they're on the same page because we're all trying to work together. You know, and I think it's about that solidarity and raising up regardless of what the experience is because we, we all have a universal experience. And I think it also goes to, um, you know, you look at some commentators on Sky News and some of them are brown or they're First Nations, they're POC, but they're still reinforcing pretty racist ideals. So I think that if you are in these institutions as a person of colour, then I think that ultimately you need to be thinking about that you know we can't just be faces on screen operating in a white institution we need to be thinking about those issues around race and how we're supporting the other communities around us hi i'd just like to start by saying thank you all so much for the work that you do and how inspiring it is for me as a young first nations woman in media um, to get on my twitter feed to get on my my media spaces and see brown voices being represented particularly women female black brown voices being represented so thank you for that and my question is um, there's a lot of conversation about work-life balance and working in media 
is very tiring. It's constantly on, um, but you can't just turn off your emails if you're a First Nations or person of colour in this space. We then turn off our emails, but then go into the world with, with this, with this, you know, uh, skin. So I just wonder how you guys balance that and manage that fatigue, both professionally and personally, as people of colour and First Nations people. Um, I really take strength from blackfellas and the stories, particularly the strength and resistance of black women. I think that's what really keeps me going because I feel like there's a greater purpose, but you don't just have a purpose to community. Um, you have a responsibility to the country and the ancestors on that country. And I think that's still what you, you realise that there is that relationship still ongoing and because of that relationship, you have that responsibility to the ancestors, but also to your community. And I feel like that's what we're here for, you know what I mean? So, But do you struggle a, ever with, with burnout? Do you, do you, are are uh, there moments of self-care that need to be put in place before the exhaustion comes in? I think so, but yeah, I don't know. Um, not so much for me because I feel like there's a greater purpose so much. So I think it's just going back to country, going back to community, taking that break, because I know, but often that can be, you know, quite, there's a fatigue from that as well. But I think, yeah, I just, I really get that strength from country and from knowing that those stories are still there and that you're supposed to be telling those stories and there's someone bigger speaking, there's someone, something bigger speaking to you and speaking for you. I really get that sense of purpose from that. So I think just remembering that, but also taking time. And, you know, when we talk about self-care, like we recently just read, read um, Audre Lorde in our Critical Race Theory group. And it was really interesting because self-care has been totally mispurposed and misused in the way she was talking about it. She was talking about self-care, but she was also travelling the world giving speeches and while she was battling cancer. So she had this very different conception of what self-care was. And self-care for her was really the fight almost. You know what I mean? So like being sustained by the writing of black women or the, the women or the, the people who you are sustained by, I think, and going back to country, taking that time to remember that you're here for a purpose, I think, and that your writing has purpose, far greater than just, you know, what this sort of capitalist society sees journalism as. I really take strength from that, I think, yeah. Rihanna? What about yourself? Oh, definitely. You know, community is what drives me, and I'm probably the worst person to ask that question to because for 19 years I didn't have it. And my husband would have to ring me and tell me that it was time to come home for dinner because I would not know what the time was in the office. Like, it was bad. Um, and I think I've only found work-life balance since going back to Indigenous media, um, you know, where it's that, again, it's that solidarity and strength in mob and mob looking out for each other that, you know, while you might be just exhausted, it's what lifts you up and keeps going because you think, back to what your ancestors went through and why you're doing what you're doing because they walk with you, they're constantly with you. Um, you know, that's how I see that purpose. Um, and so it's, yeah, you weigh that up of going, I might be bitterly tired and I'm probably going to just collapse at some point, but the work will be done for that week. Like, you know, because that's the important part of that. But I know it's something that particularly, I know our... Um, you know, those cultural leaders, but also those that are in the media space who are put up as our spokespeople too. Like I've had conversations with them when they've, you know, they've been fighting for 30, 40, 50 years for change. And they're the same thing where they actually will take time out because they have felt so burnt out by what's going on, but realise that the younger generation needs to take that on because they have this younger energy. So I think you need to work that out for yourself of what can sustain you. You know, it's hard when you're an early journalist immediate career person because you just work 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 because you're trying to 
make something happen you're trying to do your job and you know but I think yeah that strength in community has always got me through and also my Indigenous colleagues got me through at like some of the worst times I had them you know and that made all the difference. I mean, at the start you mentioned um, you know the, the the abuse you you've been getting on social media and these different spaces particularly even these days some of it's coming your way um, and how do you how do you take care of yourself when that happens? Yeah, I think it's the same as these guys. I think it's, um, you know, the cliche stuff of just like, keep your phone at home, don't look at it, go for a walk, that kind of stuff. But I think it's also, um, it is an enormous privilege, right? You know, I read the news last night that we're um, going to start jailing Australians who come home from India. And you think that is just, what what is happening there? And I think it's amazing that, you know, that I read that on a Friday night. I wasn't meant working, but then I think, okay, on Monday I can do the show and actually talk to people about this and mm-hmm. discuss why it is an issue. And so I think that is an enormous privilege and it, it does consume you and it's hard to switch off sometimes, but it it's kind of great as well. Yeah. It's a certain kind of person who works in media yeah, and I think that, that inability yeah. to switch <laughs> off is part of it. I think we have time for two more quick questions maybe. Um, go here and then we'll go there. Yeah. Um, just thank you for your insightful commentary. It's been a very thought-provoking panel. Obviously, I'm not a person of colour um, and I'm a young journalist. I've just gotten a job out in the country. Uh, the last two question askers have obviously asked from the perspective of a person of colour working in the media. I ask as a white person about to start a career in the media, what can I do? How can I change how I write? Should I be, obviously I'm an ally and I want to champion these stories and these voices, but how can I do it in a respectful way? Or is it something that I should avoid entirely? Because I don't understand that experience. It's not my shared experience. It's not my lived experience. Thank you. What's the right way? So you're about to become a rural reporter, is that right? Yes. Okay, so from my point of view, the rural reporter is so important to a community because you're essentially trying to straddle the two spheres sometimes in a community, particularly in a country town. Like we both looking at each other because we grew up in a country <laughs> town, eh? Um, so, you know, you you are there to obviously serve the community, but you're also there to serve the other people that live in that community too. And so I have always thought that particularly rural reporters have such an important job in bringing community together and telling both sides of that story, particularly because our country towns in this place also have a large history of segregation Mm. of where black people were pushed to the edges, where they still kind of live today and the town's kind of just caught up to where they were. Um, So, you know, you're also stepping into a place of that history. So knowing your community, because you have to know all the sides of your community when you're working in a regional town and knowing all of those um, communities that you have to be a part of, I would say is what you need to start doing the research on so that you hit the ground running, really. Um, because I, I think rural reporters don't understand the importance of their job sometimes because um, they're so focused on what that round is um, and forget that there's this whole other side that can also be brought into that conversation. So I think you're the bridge builder, sorry. <laughs> I think it's also a great question. And I think you raise a really important point that it can't just be First Nations people and people of colour telling these stories. Uh, that I don't know if you guys disagree, but in my opinion, I think we need white journalists to be telling these stories, to be exposing racism, to ex- expose the problems in these structures. And, you know, at this stage, clearly 
there are overwhelmingly white journalists and imagine if all of them were telling stories that expose these injustices. So I think personally, it's really important that white people like yourself can, can be telling those stories too. I think we have one last question. Thank you. Um, thank you all very much for your comments. Um, particularly, uh, I'm struck by a white person so often, how differently white people and indigenous people think. So the more often we hear the way you think, it helps us to understand things. Um, my very quick question is this. Um, if it is um, things like um, taking down statues, changing the name of Ben Boyd National Park or Griffith University, mm. um, uh, important to indigenous people? Or is it seen as something that's tokenistic? Is, it, is, 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 the, is the weight of those names something that lies heavily on indigenous shoulders? And um, should we be advocating, as white people, should we be advocating more strongly for that sort of change? I defer to the Aboriginal person in the room as the visitor. Oh, no, I, I, I think it's important. I think it's part of the... Like, we just recently in Rockhampton, like, we had a campaign led largely by Durumble women to rename a slur that had been on the... Um, it was a street, like, it was a, basically a racial slur. So there are these campaigns all across in local communities to rename these really racist... And you go, you go and you navigate even around towns like Brisbane, Boundary Street. Like, every, country, every town where there's a Boundary Street, that was the boundary that cornered off blackfellas. So there's that there's a history there. There's a bit of a debate because you, you want to remember that history as well. But I think um, remembering... I think remembering is a big part of it. Um, and the way we remember, and that's part of the foundation of this story. So for me, that's just one part of what we need to go as a nation, but there has to be so many other things that happen as well. So for me, it's important to rename all of these racist places and to rethink about who the resistance warriors and who we prop up are. Because you see the, tre the treatment of our resistance warriors like Yagan and Pemawoy, um, all of these mob all around the country, Jandamara, how they were treated and how they were spoken of. And for us, those are our heroes. And so it's about re-changing that. And, you know, a lot of these men who are, you know, streets are named after them and, you know, buildings are named after them. They had, you know, their blood is... Their, their prosperity was built on the blood of blackfellas. And you never hear about that side. And But I think it's a project for every single community in this country. Like I always say, like, learn the history of the ground you're walk, walking upon or where you grew up on. Because you, you see that history. And it's, it's there right in front of you when you start to look at it in your eyes. So I think it's really important. Um, but because mob are currently being killed in custody, because, you know, Aboriginal children being removed at ever higher rates you know that's that's where our focus is a lot of the time you know survival and resistance and justice but it's all a part of what needs to happen i think thank you, thank you very much uh i think that's a great note to kind of wrap up the conversation on so i'd just like to thank the panelists one last time avni dias around uh, patrick and in the choir thank you so much Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.